Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted And it turned out that way, as you well know, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that your labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Perhaps the most famous short story novelist in the history of Georgia is a lady or was a lady whose name was Flannery O'Connor. She was a resident of Milledgeville, Georgia. She wrote short stories. She was Roman Catholic, but a devout, a woman of devout Christian faith. She was one of those rare breeds who, though she held tightly to a devout Christian faith, she had the uncanny ability of making fun of people of her faith in a humorous, realistic way. Some of her stories are kind of uh, hmm, shocking. One of them that is shocking is a story that's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. I don't recommend reading it. It's about a family in Georgia who are arguing over which way to go for their vacation. A grandmother wanted to go to Tennessee And the rest of the family wanted to go to Florida. The rest of the family won out. And so they packed all of their stuff and all their family into one single vehicle, like what we used to do back in the 60s and early 70s. I don't know how we did it, but we did. And they headed out toward Florida. The grandmother mad the whole time. In fact, three hours before anybody else was ready to go, she was out in the car fully dressed in a dress to go on vacation because she said, if the car breaks down or if some, for some reason we lose our lives, I want to look like I'm ready to go. And they headed down south. She's complaining all the time, thinking that they should have gone to Tennessee. They didn't go to Tennessee. On the way, they stop at a a general store to gas up 
One of those kind that they used to have full service. They'd come out, check your oil for you, wash your windshield, fill her up. Five dollars, please. You know, that kind of store. Some of us remember those. And the storekeeper told them, they said, now you might want to be on the lookout around here. There is a fellow by the name of the misfit who uh, has been released from prison. Very violent man, uh, armed and dangerous, may have some other characters with him. Uh, he is absolutely uh, the one of the most violent people you'll ever meet. You need to watch out for him. And so the grandmother is talking to the storekeeper. and She says, what about that? She said, you know, a good man is hard to find. They get in the car and they head on down. And the grandmother starts talking about a place, a house that she used to visit in South Georgia. It's off the beaten path on a dirt road. And the more she talks about it, the more the children and the grandchildren want to go visit it. And they finally talk pop into turning off the main highway, taking a, uh, an excursion down the dirt road, looking for this house, and they get several miles down the dirt road when the grandmother, rethinking the whole thing, thinks, you know, on second thought, I think that house was in, it was in Tennessee. <laughs> and upon telling that, the father lets out a yelp, and the family cat, which is also in the car, along with all the other family members on vacation, it takes a leap, and it causes the pop who's driving to veer off into a ditch, and he wrecks the car. Everybody gets out, thinking it's part of the adventure. They're in the middle of nowhere. They need help, and so they decide they're going to flag down any car that happens to also be lost in coming down that dirt road and in the middle of South Georgia, when a car comes down and they flag it to the side, they get out and there are three men, all armed. And in the context of the conversation, the grandmother realizes that one of the men is the misfit. And I'm not going to tell the rest of the story. Suffice it to say, the misfit and his buddies were not good friends to the grandmother and her family. Not only is a good man hard to find, a good friend is hard to find. Leroy Brownlow, in his 1970s book, The Flowers of Friendship, said this. He says, birth gives us our relatives, but choice gives us our friends. Fate will not let us pick our relatives, but we are allowed to select our friends. So if we don't have the right friends, it is because we made the wrong choices or pursued the wrong courses. No one to blame but ourselves, he said. Thus, we should be slow in choosing a friend and much slower in changing one. As I was reading this passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the first time I read it, I, I just my mind was kind of like a blank slate. I know that's a real surprise to you all. But I was reading the passage and I said, okay, I want, a, I want a blank slate in my mind. And as I read this passage, I want the passage simply to speak to me and, and give me the framework for the message. And so I was reading it. I thought, you know, here Paul is. He, has, he, he only had three weeks in Thessalonica to start a church. He starts a church. He gets run out of town. He goes to Berea. From Berea, he goes down to uh, uh, Corinth, and from there he goes to Athens. From Athens, he's writing this letter back to them. He wants to go back, and he says in the, at the end of chapter 2 that Satan blocked him from going back. Very interesting verse of Scripture there at the end of chapter 2. 
And so when you begin chapter three, he says, so when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy. I sent Timothy to you because I wanted to see how you were doing. And as I read that, I thought, this is some kind of relationship that Paul has with this young minister, Timothy. It's not just anybody that you would entrust something very important to you with. And yet he entrusts Tim, to Timothy this, this project. Timothy, I trust you. I can hear him say, I want you to go back to Thessalonica and find out how these people are doing. And I know that you will not forget me. You'll come back and let me know how it's going. I thought about the friendship between Paul and Timothy. I also thought about the friendship between Paul and this church. How much throughout this chapter, he shows how much he loves this church, how much he's thinking about this church. He's far away from them, but he's thinking about them. He only spent three weeks with them. You ever spent just a few days with somebody and then you leave them at the end of that few days and your heart is broken? Whenever I was uh, 9, 10, 11 years old, we, of course, lived up and coming and uh, the children's home at first was in Hapeful, and then they moved it here to Palmetto. And there was a young man who was uh, one of the residents of the children's home, came from a big family. His name was Tommy Glenn Priest. And every summer, mom and dad made arrangements to come down to the campus at Hapeful, and we would pick up Tommy Glenn Priest, and he would go home with us for two weeks during the summer. And we grew to love Tommy Priest. And I remember we would spend two weeks with him and we'd go to Braves games and we'd go to church revivals. I'm sure he loved that. And we would, we would, he, would, he was the one who taught me. We had this blue old AM only radio and we'd listen to the Braves game and he, he had a Braves score tablet. And he taught me how to keep score on a Braves score tablet. Tommy Priest. He'd be with us for two weeks. And I remember one of the most vivid things that I remember every time he was with us, we'd come back. And we'd drop him off and see him in his room at the children's home. And it was one of the most heart-wrenching experiences of every year. Is when we would bring him back at the end of two weeks together 24-7 and we'd leave him there. Now we'd have contact with him throughout the year. But I'm telling you, I always dreaded, especially when we came to Palmetto and they got that long drive there in front of the chapel and we'd drop him off and we'd pull away and Tommy Priest would be standing on the front porch of one of those cottages, just waving, just waving. And mom and dad and Tim and I, we were all just boo-hooing and, and daddy slowly made that ride out that long entrance to the children's So Somebody needs to cut that thing down. Paul spent three weeks in Thessalonica, but he made great friends there. And his relationship with them and theirs with him and his relationship with Timothy, as I was reading this, I thought, man, this tells us what good friends are like. A good friend is hard to find. Many people have people they know. They meet once or twice. Then people have a different level. They're acquaintances that they see on a more than once or twice occasion, but they're really not friends. And then there are those people who are friends, but we really don't tell them anything much. I mean, it's not that we don't trust them, but we don't quite 
know if we can trust them. And then there, there's, there's one, maybe two, if you have that many people who you just know you could open up your heart and let them see all the garbage in it and they're going to love you just like you are their own anyway. A good friend is hard to find. And this passage teaches us some things about what good friends should be like, the qualities of a good friend. The first thing I want you to notice here is that a good friend can be trusted with what is important in your life. Paul said, Timothy, the Thessalonians are important to me, and I am going to entrust to you the project of going to see them finding out how they are, letting them know how we're doing and how much we love them, and then come back and let me know about it. I can't entrust this project to just anybody, Timothy. Can't you hear him saying it? I have to have somebody I can count on. If you read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul outlines several people to Timothy who once had been with him, but who had forsaken him. Timothy was not one of those kinds of people who could not be trusted with the important parts of Paul's life. Blaise Pascal is quoted to have said that everyone, if, if everyone knew the innermost thoughts of everyone else, there wouldn't be five friends left on earth. That's a very pessimistic way of looking at friendship. There is some truth to it, no doubt. It's not everybody that you can trust the most intimate parts of your life with. But certainly, Paul could trust, entrust those to Timothy. In verse 1, it says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy. Who is Timothy? He's our brother. He's our co-worker. He is trustworthy. Someone said this. They said, You should rise in defense of good friends when they are criticized. When you hear a mutual friend criticizing your friend, you should intervene. You don't have to mince any words. That's an untrue accusation. I know it is. And even if it were true, it's disloyal to talk about him that way. Letitia Baldridge on the manners of friendship. A good friend can be trusted with what is important in your life. And you can, you can reveal that important part of your life to them and they will not judge you for it. They will not disown you for it. They will not abandon you for it. They will stick by you for it. Second, a good friend always wants what is best for you. Always wants what is best for you. Paul says in verse 7, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Now we can really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you? And for your return, for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. A good friend always wants what's best for you. The opposite of that is not a good friend. One of the most often uh, given quotes by uh, Gore Vidal was this. Gore Vidal is quoted, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. I read that and I cringe. I think, what a sorry friend Gore Vidal would have been. But then again, I think back on sometimes when I was right on the cusp of seeing a friend succeed and there was a little bit of envy in me. You ever had that happen to you? 
Every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. Listen, a good friend wants the best for you, wants you to succeed in every possible way. Eric Lindemann wrote a book called Beyond Grief, Studies in Crisis Intervention. He wrote it in 1979 as he researched uh, something that happened back in 1942 in Boston, Massachusetts. It was the Coconut Grove Nightclub Fire of 1942, in which over 400 people lost their lives. More people lost their lives than what the, what the, uh, the fire marshal's capacity for the building was. And so Eric Lindemann chronicled the survivors of that nightclub fire, and he found that there were two kinds of survivors to that fire. He says there were those who recovered quickly, and there were those who recovered slowly or barely at all. Those who recovered quickly and those who recovered just barely or very slowly. And he said the only difference he could find between the two was that those who recovered quickly found strength and support, not just from counseling or therapy, but from a community of friends and family who called them, kept track of them, wrote them, and loved them back. There is healing in the presence and the love of a good friend. A good friend wants always what is best for you. As we go through these, we need to ask two questions, I think. One of them is, do I have friends like this? Number two, am I a friend like this? Do I have friends like this? Am I a friend like this? Am I a friend who can be trusted with what's important in the people, in the lives of the people I love? Am I a friend who always wants best, what is best for the people I love? Number three, a good friend loves being with you. The Apostle Paul said in this chapter in verses 10 and 11, he says, night and day, night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. A person who is a good friend of yours loves being around you, loves being with you. They don't try to avoid you. They want to be with you. Now, it's not that they want to, uh, it's not that they want to harass you or badger you. It's not that they want to follow you around and snoop on you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a friend who just loves being in your company. They don't have to be there but they love being there when they are there. I love uh, the, the, the books of Anne Lamott. In her book, Traveling Mercies, she said this. She said, I always imagined when I was a kid that adults had some kind of inner toolbox full of shiny tools, the saw of discernment, the hammer of wisdom, the sandpaper of patience. But she says, then when I grew up, I found that life handed you these Rusty, bent, old tools, tools like friendship, prayer, conscience, honesty, and said, do the best you can with these. They'll have to do. And Anne Lamott says, and mostly against all odds, to my surprise, they were enough. Those rusty tools of a good friend, prayer, honesty, conscience, those are the kind of things. They're not shiny And they don't look new, 
They look withered and coming out of an old dried up board barn, but they are the things that work. Friendships uh, from, from people who want to be with you. Paul wanted to be with these people and obviously he wanted to be with Timothy. He spent most of his missionary career in the presence of this young protege named Timothy. Number four, a good friend understands when you need space. A good friend understands when you need space. Everybody needs some space every now and then. Everybody needs some time away from the world. Everybody needs time away from uh, all the busyness. Paul said in verse 1, he said, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves. I love that. We found it best to be left by ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about being a recluse. Someone who never is in the, the presence of family and friends, that's a problem. But someone who uh, realizes that there are times when we need to be left to ourselves. We need to be able to think things through. There is an East, an old East Indian custom of someone standing next to someone in silence. A step back of them. And that, to the East Indian culture, is a symbol of someone who wants to make friends with you. If you're standing beside someone in silence, but a step back from them, you allow them the silence, you allow them the space, and it shows that you want to be a good friend. That's still true. Allowing for silence, allowing for the space, if you truly want that kind of of relationship. That's number four. Number five, a good friend will tell you the truth. This perhaps is one of the hardest things. There's so many people that we count as friends, but if if they see us habitually doing something that's uh, provided it's not illegal, they hesitate to tell us the truth. Sometimes it could be something that's legal. I think we see that at Penn State. I'm telling you, a lot of people saw a lot of things going on, and because that coach was a friend of theirs, they didn't want to confront him with the truth, and a lot of people hurt, and a lot of people are hurting right now. A good friend will tell you the truth even when the truth stings a little bit. Why is it, especially here in the South maybe, that we're so hesitant to tell a friend the truth when it stings a bit. Why is that? Is it because of our southern hospitality and our manners and our our reluctance to offend somebody? Is that what it is? Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But, you know, we we look for the truth in, in some other places. Imagine going to pick up your car at the garage, and you come to the person who's working on the car, and you say, hey, tell me what's wrong with this car. And the garage mechanic says, hey, there's nothing wrong with it knowing all the time that it's about to break down, knowing all the time that the axle is cracked and the carburetor is about is leaking and uh, the fuel pump's going out and the alternator's kind of weak. And says, hey, nothing's wrong with that car. And so you get out, you, you pay them for over, looking over the car, and you drive and you get about five miles in the middle of the desert where there is no mechanic and there's no city and there's no friend, there's no nothing. And the car breaks down. And three years later, when you make it back out of the desert, you go back to the mechanic and you say, why didn't you tell me the truth? Hey, why didn't you tell me the truth? 
You see, we have no problem in that situation wanting the truth. You go to your doctor and the doctor gives you a full examination and, and, and your doctor finds something wrong with you. She finds that there's something wrong with you. And you say, okay, doc, just, just give, me, give, me the full, give me the full brunt of it. Tell me the truth. You're fine. You're going to be fine. Not a thing in the world wrong with you. And you go away. Thinking that everything's all right, they didn't tell you the truth. No, you want a doctor who is point blank with you. You want a doctor who is, is, will, will give you on the level what is truly going on with your life. But when it comes to friends, sometimes we're so reluctant to give people the full truth. Paul was not that way. In fact, if you read uh, his letter to the Galatians chapter 2, there was a time when in front of everybody, he went up to Simon Peter, the spokesperson of Jesus' 12 disciples, and Paul confronted him in front of everybody. Not because he wanted to be a know-it-all, not because he wanted to show up Peter, but because Peter was in the wrong on something. He says this in Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men, before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile, not a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He confronted him with the truth. I was in a church one time. There was a lady who was very well thought of in our church. Always was helping people. I mean, and people were always very appreciative of the help that she gave. I mean, they knew that she, they knew her heart. They knew that she was a person who loved them. And over time, she had developed a lot of respect, earned a lot of respect from the people in the church. But at some point uh, in, in our time there, she, she, started, she started dipping into people's business without them inviting her to do so. And not only would she dip into their business and find out about their business, I guess she thought she had earned enough respect to do that, but she would also try to tell them how to run their lives. And it got to where it was an, an, a habitual thing. And people began to notice it. And people didn't like it. But nobody ever said anything to her. Not even her friends ever said anything to her. They saw it. They noticed it. They realized it was going on. But they never said anything to her. Listen, a good friend will tell you the truth. And then finally, a good friend prays for you. Paul says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen our hearts that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The best thing that you can do for the friends in your life is when you get in your closet or your room or your bathroom or your car or wherever it is you go and you pray and you talk to God on behalf of that person. You pray for that person. 
Some people will tell you that you ought to do a whole lot more than pray. Sometimes that is the case. But I'll tell you this. While there are times when we need to do, we need to do a whole lot more than pray, you'll never do anything more important than pray for the people in your life. Kevin Miller is an editor of Leadership Journal, which is put out by Christianity Today. He was thinking about friends one time, and he said this. He says, when I was a kid... Saturday mornings were chore day. Dad would get up and he'd say, come on, kid. And I'd hop in the station wagon. We'd drive down the street to Hooper Wolf's hardware store. Kind of like the Jack Peaks, I guess. Hooper Wolf's hardware store. And he said, we would drive down the street and Hooper Wolf had an old wood door painted white except where the paint was worn or near the handle. And you'd walk in, you could hardly move. There were two narrow aisles. The counters were filled with merchandise. Shelves were overflowing. Stuff was hanging from the ceiling. You'd think, no way am I going to find anything in here. But you wouldn't need to, he said. You'd come in and as soon as you walked in, Clarence from behind the counter would say, help you today. And he said, my dad would say something like, I want to hang a light out back. And Clarence would come out from behind the counter and he would ask some questions. Well, where are you going to hang it? Over the patio? Well, then, and he would start rummaging through the shelves until he pulled off just the right light. You want a light like this? And don't use those bolts here. They're good for indoor stuff, but for outdoor, you want something galvanized. And then he'd say, your wall is brick, isn't it? Clarence would ask. He says, even though our town was small, he says, I was, press, was impressed that Clarence knew that our, our house was, had a brick wall there where he wanted the light to go. He said, well, if it's a brick wall, you'll need to run a conduit through there. You'll want a masonry drill bit about at least three quarters of an inch. And if we don't have that in stock, you can get one over at Miller's Lumber Yard down the street. Then Clarence would pull out a flat carpenter's pencil off his ear, get a little piece of paper and sketch it all out. The conduit goes here and make sure you don't mount the light too close to the soffit. <laughs> but he said today... He said, when I have a project on Saturday, I get up and I go to either Lowe's or Home Depot. And unlike Hooper Wolf's, where you had to parallel park on the street, there's an ocean of parking. And inside the Home Depot is huge. The aisles are wide. The ceiling's 30 feet high. And Home Depot has 40 times the amount of inventory. It's all great, bright argon lights. He said, there's a guy in an orange apron a block away. If you run him down, he's likely to say, sorry, I usually work in paints. I'm just covering in electrical because someone called in sick, so you're pretty much on your own. Well, they might not say you're pretty much on your own. Kevin Miller said a similar thing seems to have happened lately in church. We have our programs that are amazing, almost Disney level quality, technological sophistication. But he said there's something missing. There's no Clarence. There's no Clarence. And we need to get back to what he called the Clarence principle. Where we find people who know us, who know what we need. And they'll come out from around the counter to be our friend. A good friend is hard to find. Clarence is hard to find. Do you have those kind of friends? Are you that kind of friend? Let's pray. Lord, you said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And then you did it. You laid down your life for your friends. You showed us 
the supreme example of a good friend. On the cross, we see it. In the resurrection, we see it. Lord, help us to surround ourselves with good friends and help us to be the good friends that we need. Lord, I pray for someone today to reconcile with a friend. I pray for someone today to come to receive you as their Savior and Lord. I pray for someone today to come join for baptism. I pray for someone who's a Christian and maybe been baptized to come join our church. I pray for people with concerns in their hearts to bring those concerns to the altar. I pray for lives to be impacted by your spirit. Lord, we have worshiped, we have sung, we have played instruments, we prayed, we have preached. But Lord, when all is said and done, it's, it's the arrival of your Holy Spirit who changes lives. We can't do it, but you can. And I pray that you would change somebody's life right here, right now, in this altar, in Jesus' name. Amen.